there are a number of heroic stories that came out of World War II. You're probably familiar with Schindler's List, where Oscar Schindler uh, saved a number of Jewish people using his money and using his insight. One of the other great stories is out of a little village in France called Les Chambons, and it's the story that Philip Halley tells in Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed. It's a 1979 book if you want to get a hold of it. And it's a story of just ordinary people, people that were oftentimes on the verge of poverty themselves, that they needed help because it was the middle of the war, and they were just ordinary people, not the educated elite of Paris, but they occupied this little parish community in the middle of France. Uh, And the story starts, the story begins by a knock on a door, and Pastor Andre Trochme's wife, Magda, answers the door. And it's freezing cold, it's snowing, it's a whiteout, and there's a Jewish woman on the front porch, and she needs help. She's running from the Gestapo, and she's cold, and she's scared. And what does Magda say? She says, naturally, come on in, because she is a Christian that gets the gospel. She understands the hospitality that has been shown to her by Jesus. And so her response to a need, even though it puts her and her family at great risk, is naturally, come on in. And that phrase begins to circulate around the hillsides and around the other communities as the catchphrase, as the, the, the belief, the ethos of Les Bone. And Jewish refugees begin to flood in at an amazing rate. So many that the population of Jewish refugees in this little village rivals that of the residents themselves. And the law is that if you take in a refugee, if you give them safe harbor, then you can be charged and be punished even to death. And so anyone that would take in a Jewish refugee would be putting their lives at great risk. And yet every house in that community took them in, not for days, not for weeks, But for years, they would harbor these Jewish refugees, feed them, hide them when the Gestapo came around. Went on for years. Now, on the evening of February 13th, 1943, I think that's 68 68 years ago to the day of today, a large car stops in the front of the Presbytery meeting. Andre Trachme is there, the pastor of this little village, uh, his assistant, Edward Thiese, uh, who is the halftime minister and administrator of the school, and a number of others. And the Gestapo has pulled up, and they arrest them and take them to a POW camp. Now, Magda is there, and she has been cooking dinner. And so when the police come to take his, her husband away, as well as some of her closest friends, she invites them in and feeds them dinner. And when her friends say, why in the world would you do something crazy like that? Why would you invite your enemies into dinner? She says, well, it was dinner time and everyone was hungry and the food was ready. Naturally, come on in. She, her understanding of gospel-centered, biblical hospitality took her to the limits of what she could do. It made her willing to risk her life. It made her willing to have dinner and serve dinner to her enemies, to the Gestapo. Their hospitality, their orientation towards the other, towards the outsider, was such that their entire village gains 
a reputation for generosity. So people begin to stream in to find what is so great, what is wonderful about this village. Every house participated and every house made room for the outsider because what was at the center of that village was a tiny little church that understood what the gospel meant and understood Jesus' hospitality. Now we're going to look this morning briefly at three things and the practices of hospitality and how the gospel, if we understand it correctly, makes us a church that makes room for other people. We're going to look at conventional hospitality, that is everyday hospitality. Our our natural inclination is not to be hospitable, but to serve ourselves, to make ourselves comfortable. Radical hospitality, the way of Jesus, and then intentional hospitality. How does in town become a place that has a reputation for generosity, that invites other people in? So first of all, conventional. Look at the setting in this passage. Jesus is at a meal with very respectable people. He's at a meal of the elite, the religiously elite, the educated class. And his fellow guests have sought out the best seats. They've tried to find the best seats for, of honor for themselves. And they've elbowed and nudged and tried to get to the places of honor because it tells them something about themselves. It gives them a sense of who they are and their position in the community. And the host has followed the customary practices, the conventional practices of putting together a list of invitees that reflects his stature in the community. And what you have in the ancient Mediterranean world is that invitations served as a sort of social currency, that the parties and meals that you were invited to gave you a sense of your place in the community. And so high-status, high-educated people invited high-status, high-educated people because those people could reciprocate. Middle status, and you get the picture, so on. You always ate, and you, you went to parties with people of your class, of your setting, of your social standing. And if you didn't have social currency, if you didn't have something to offer the host, then you didn't get invited. Now, maybe we're thinking, well, that seems so far-fetched. It seems so old-fashioned. It seems so traditional and closed-minded and outmoded. You know, we wouldn't have that sort of transparent, classist outlook in our modern day. Certainly not the way we do it. We would never be so gauche. But au contraire, we often are, and Portland often is. One of the most important books that I read last year, you've heard me reference it before, was called The Big Sort, uh, how the clustering of America is splint, how the clustering of America is splintering us. And it's uh, written by... Bill Bishop, and he argues basically that this idea of e pluribus unum, that this idea that the United States is a huge melting pot where differences fall away and so forth, is kaput, that it's no longer true, and that we as Americans are living more and more isolated and splintered lives, that we are intentionally sequestering ourselves off from other people, people who are different from us economically ethnically, and perhaps most stringently, people who are different from us ideologically. He says, most Americans are seeking out and gravitating towards those who share their life worlds, made up of old fundamental differences such as race, class, gender, and age. But now, more than ever, personal tastes, beliefs, styles, opinions, and values 
that we are clustering ourselves, sequestering ourselves off from people that have different outlooks and different values from us. And Portland is one of the leading examples of this. And he cites it in his book that people, especially young people, are moving to Portland intentionally because it that shares their values. They're coming here not for economic reasons, but for lifestyle and ideological reasons. But they're sequestering their, themselves off from the rest of America, Heartland America, Red State America. We're going to be in Portland because this is the way, this is the place to be progressive. And so they move here because it reflects and it reinforces their values. And it isolates them from contrary values. Now, we could be very hard on Portland doing that, right? And presume for a moment that maybe we wouldn't do that in the church. But Martin Luther King famously remarked years ago that Sunday morning at 11 o'clock is the most segregated time in America. And oftentimes, that hasn't really changed all that much. Donald McGavran, who is a, a missiologist at Fuller Seminary, I think he's still alive. He came up in the 1960s with the homogeneous unit principle that basically said that people will rarely convert. They'll rarely come to your church if they have to cross linguistic, social, cultural, or ideological boundaries. So why fight that? Let's just create units of people that are similar to one another, and they'll grow. And the thing is, he's right. It works. And many of the megachurches that if I said their name, you would recognize, were built on this theory, that let's corral ourselves with people just like us, and then people like us will want to come to our church. John Green is a pollster, and Bill Bishop quotes him in the book, and he says, These days, people are unlikely to meet many at church whose politics differ from their own. The forces of group polarization are at work within the sanctuary, too. To the extent that people receive information from congregations, they are likely to have that information reinforced by the people they worship with. It's like having a big filter for ideas. Now, one of the things I love about InTown that was endearing when I first came here, so I can't take credit for it. I wish I could. But we're all over the map ideologically. And that's a beautiful thing because it suggests that there's something more central and more foundational to our lives than just our political viewpoint, just our our cultural values. And so that's been very lovely to see that taking place, that people don't have to shift, they don't have to adopt a political viewpoint or ideology to be a part of the mission and vision of InTown. But there's always the temptation in your home, in your personal life, in your community group, or at church, to do this sort of conventional hospitality, to welcome people who are very similar to you, to build your ministry around welcoming people who are just like you, people that have the similar life worlds, because it's easy. (laughs) It's easier when people come to your community group that aren't tough to deal with, that don't have weird personalities, that don't have lots of needs that they burden you with. It's much easier to build a community group, it's much easier to build a church around those types of people because it's comfortable and it doesn't cost you very much. And so a lot of people with consumer mindsets about church will come and the church would grow. And we need to be very careful about that because though it works, it's very pragmatic to do groups, to do church like that. It's not gospel-centered. It's not the way of Jesus. 
Jesus' way of relationship is radically different. His way of hospitality is radically different. What we are saying this morning, what we are arguing is that the gospel, Jesus' announcement of the good news of the kingdom makes room for others, makes room for the outsider. And if we believe the gospel, then it should, at every level of our church, that we should make room for the outsider. Now, the gospel is the good news that God has not turned his back on sinners, that he offers his eternal welcome, his everlasting friendship, free of charge. The gospel is the very center, the core of Christianity. It is the unwavering love of Jesus Christ, his unrelenting pursuit of people who are in need of grace. That's what operates at the heart of God. And so if you follow that God, if you grasp that good news, then it must permeate who you are. It must permeate who we are as a church. If we claim that we're a gospel-centered church, we will intentionally, radically make room for other people. And what happens, here's the key, is that if you take hold of that grace, as you let it percolate down deep in your heart, as you let it take root in your soul, when you realize that you were invited in if you're a Christian, when you were a stranger, not when you had gotten your life together, not when you had done the right things and jumped through the right hoops, but before that Jesus walked into your life, Jesus was hospitable to you, Jesus put up with all of your idiosyncrasies before he gave you the gospel. When you get that, when you remind yourself of it daily, weekly, over and over, when you're in a community that believes that and reinforces that, when it gets down into your soul, that's when you can begin to be hospitable to others, when you can sense your own heart making room for other people. Now, we may think of hospitality as a sort of tame or docile domestic Activity. Why are we talking about hospitality? Isn't that sort of just providing a good meal for people when they come over, you know, setting out some flowers, putting on some good music? It seems kind of tame. Why would we talk about hospitality? It's that Christian hospitality, gospel-centered hospitality, is subversive. It's counter-cultural, and it always has been when it's been done well. A church with the gospel at its core. A church that is hospitable because Jesus has been hospitable to us is not simply meeting a need. It's not simply providing a service. But it's providing and pointing to an alternative model of relationships altogether. A new way of doing community. A new way of relationship that cuts across conventional values and party lines. The social conventions in this passage that Jesus is talking about and in the, in the world at large, in our modern world, Jesus says need to be overthrown because they're exclusionary, they're hierarchical, and they're fundamentally selfish. What's similar about the people on this list that he gives? The lame, the blind, the, the weak, and let me, the crippled, the blind, the poor. What is similar about them? Why does he choose them? is that at the core of those people, there is a need, there is a burden, there is an inability to function 
normally in society. Now he's speaking to a gathering of Pharisees, highly religious people, highly morally motivated people. And he calls them out. (laughs) He's very blunt. He says, you've missed it, guys. You may be very pious. You may be very morally pure and scrupulous. But you're selfishly using people to promote your own sense of understanding yourself, your own identity, to promote your social standing and to insulate yourself from the needs around you. Now, in a world that we pointed out is somewhat similar to that, in a fractured, splintered world, in a society that appraises people based upon external values, in a world that demotes and often discards people because they serve no utilitarian value to society, a church that shows the radical hospitality of Jesus in that context will be radically countercultural. It will be a refuge for those who are outsiders. It'll be a refuge for those who are tired of doing that hierarchical thing, that class thing, that I'm cooler than you thing. It will be a refuge for those people that want to find a new way, that want to live by grace. Even if people have a, difficult time, have a difficult time agreeing with everything that the church believes, radical hospitality may cause them to scratch their heads and say, that's not what I thought Christianity was all about. I thought Christianity was following the rules and being a nice person and trying not to have too much fun, and then you get to go to heaven. Instead, radical hospitality that opens itself up to the needs of the city and to the poor will allow people to reconsider will allow people maybe to doubt their skepticism. It's countercultural. It's counterintuitive. And it's subversive if it's done well. Now, it also needs to be very intentional. It's going to take a ton of intentionality to make room for the outsider in your personal life, to make room for the misfit in your community group, to make room at this table and in this service for those that don't agree yet with what we're claiming is true. It takes intentionality. It takes thoughtfulness. Just as you would host a party at your home and give thought to, how do I make my home a warm and welcoming place? How do I make my my home or this party something that guests would want to come back to? The same sort of intentionality needs to happen in our groups. It needs to happen in our Bible studies and all of the places that we meet. What Jesus is describing is not just responding to someone on the doorstep with grace, but he says, what? Invite, go and find the lame, the blind, the poor, the crippled. Invite them. There's an intentional focus that is required. And when we begin to invite those types of people, not particularizing those, the lame and so forth, but any person of need, any person that has a huge burden that brings their burdens into the community. When we intentionally focus on inviting them in, then worship will not be comfortable. It won't be simply a relaxing time for you to re, you know, recommit to Jesus. It will be a challenging time. It will be a time that maybe even drains you a little bit on a Sunday morning. Think about that. Now, the book of the month that is on the table, actually, I think it is, but it's Making Room, 
Recovering the Lost Tradition of Christian Hospitality by Christine Pohl. And she identifies some opposing forces which will require some sustained and insistent effort for us to overcome. Two things. One, she says that many of the activities of care that used to take place largely in the home or in the church, such as care for the poor, the sick, the aging, uh, and those on the margins are now cared for, not in the church or the home, but in other spheres and other institutions with their own culture, with their own set of rules, and their own specialists. The care for the people in our passage have now been professionalized and outsourced. So that's one thing, is that the church doesn't have a memory left of how it used to work, that it used to be more of a refuge for, place, for people like this. And she also notes how personal space has become much more privatized in our modern day. That our home has become a, a cherished retreat from the outside world. It's where we come and rest and get away from the stresses and the demands of the outside world. And doubtless this has infiltrated our idea of church as well. That it's a retreat from the stresses of the week and maybe almost without thinking that we view church as our needed, necessary shot in the arm, that we need a shot of Jesus, and that's our focus. And it's not, first of all, and primarily, a place where we come to serve and to give and to invite and to welcome other people. Now, one of the correctives that Christine Pohl gives is that she says that we need to remember that God's, that the church is called the household of God consistently in Scripture, that his door to his house is eternally open, and he's constantly making an invitation to the other, to the outsider, to come in. And that when we remember this, when we remember that it's God's household, it reminds us that we are not inviting people to our church. We're not asking people to come to our table, but we're coming as equals into God's house, to his table. When I was uh, looking at this job, my good friend Charles Garland was the pastor who had originally started this church. And I thought, well, hey, I'll give him a call and find out some things about the church and about Portland. And it was very helpful. But one of the things that he says that was so funny is that when they first got to Portland, you've got to remember Charles, is, he's a golfer. He has, wears golf shirts that are tucked in with belts and, you know, all the, the fixings, nice shoes and so forth. He doesn't look like a Portlander at all. So he comes with his family, and they go to, of all places, Saturday Market. And uh, so they're walking around, and Zach, his younger son, I don't know what, how old he was then, but he said, Dad, these people are weirdos. And Charles, without missing a beat, says, No, son, we're the weirdos here. <laughs> One of the things that we need to remember that you need to remember if you're a Christian is the consistent theme that you heard in the passage that we read in Deuteronomy earlier is that the story of God's people is that they're aliens, that they're strangers, that they're those who had, who had to be invited in, that you were a stranger, you were an outsider, you were the outcast, and that Jesus has brought you in if you belong to him. When you read through the Bible over and over, you get this theme of Israel being identified as an alien that has been given a home, a slave, a refugee that has been rescued 
Exodus 23, the command says, you shall not oppress a stranger. Why? Because you know the heart of a stranger. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Charles and Zach knew that day that we're strangers here. We're the outsiders. We're not the elite, the cultural insiders. We are standing outside. That's the heart. The heart of the Old Testament law is to care for the foreigner, to care for the widow, to care for the fatherless, because you understand your identity as one of them who has been given a father, given a home, given an identity, free of charge. And this experience of vulnerability and utter dependence upon God should yield sympathy and and graciousness to others. It's exactly what Jesus says a few chapters earlier, Luke 6. He says, be merciful just as your father as merciful. See yourself as an utter stranger brought in only by the mercy of God. And then as you do that, you can begin to extend mercy to those who are in need. When you understand that Jesus has gone out of his way to accommodate you, to put up with your sin, to put up with your needs over and over, you can begin to have the resources to accommodate others. Now, what will it mean, just quickly, practically? When we reflect on the gospel, when we begin to see it and find it seeping down into the cracks and the crevices of our lives, we will begin to intentionally chip away at our spheres of privacy. Now, many people think that I'm an extrovert because I have a very public role, and they're used to me talking when they're in my presence. But I'm not. I'm actually quite introverted. I'm the one that gets on the airplane and quickly puts his headphones on and opens my computer so no one will talk to me because if someone starts talking, they may talk to me the whole flight And I would be a disaster on the other end. And so I I wall myself off, right? I say, this is my refuge. Don't, Don't enter in. Don't intrude upon my quiet time, my private time. Often when the salespersons come to the front door, you know, I'll act like no one's home. (laughs) You turn off the lights real quick or run away because I... I don't want to interact. I'm in my private place. This is my refuge. I don't want to talk to people on the front porch. They're trying to sell me something. And you see, I have to get rid of that idea that life is about me and my comfort. That the gospel says the life, my life is not my own. That I belong to Jesus. That my time belongs to Jesus. That my money, my resources all belong to Jesus. And that I've got to be more willing to open up my private life to other people, especially those people who are in need. And as I alluded to earlier, another thing, that all events in our home, in our church, are oriented towards inviting and welcoming the outsider. That we can't be content to say, this is for us. That this is an in-house moment. But instead, we need to adapt, be adaptable to making ourselves accessible that we learn how to translate the gospel to people around us. As you will hopefully get a sense of, when you come here on Sunday morning, we go to great lengths to try and contextualize the gospel to the questions that people actually have on the outside, to talk about Jesus in a way that connects to your real life and the real life that is lived outside by the average Portlander. 
We try to accommodate the fact that they don't know what atonement means, that they don't know what justification means, so we don't use insider language. We explain our terms because we want to be a church that's hospitable to the questioner, to the outsider. And then finally, in-towners, we need to be not just people that keep the door open, hoping that someone might wander in, but just as this passage says, to be inviters that we are a culture that brings people here, that brings people to worship, that brings people to pint night, to community group, to other venues, because we are in the business of inviting people to meet with Jesus. Gainesville State is a high school in North Texas. Their football team is called the Tornadoes. They have helmets, they have jerseys, they have practice just like any other team, but they don't have a home field, and so every game that they play is on someone else's turf, and when they go home from that game, a barbed wire gate shuts behind them, and they go into their cell, because what Gainesville State is, it's a high school, uh, it's a high security high school for juvenile offenders. So they're 0-8 on the year, and they have no fans, they have no parents that come to watch their games. And they travel each and every week to go play in someone else's field. Never anyone there rooting for them. But this particular week, they're traveling to Faith Christian of Grapevine, Texas, a football powerhouse. Now, the Tornadoes are coming to play on their turf, and in the cutthroat nature of Texas football, you would think that the Faith Christian team would exploit every advantage that they have to win this game. But the coach of faith, Chris Hogan, has a different idea of what this game is going to be all about. What they decide to do is they donate half of their fans and half of their cheerleaders to the Tornadoes. And so when the Tornadoes arrive, they have a spirit line that is set up. You know the one where the the team runs through the big banner and crushes through the, the, the paper and then the cheerleaders run behind them? They have that set up. And so these high-security criminals run through this line without handcuffs on as if it's a Friday night like any other kid. And they're cheered by name by the other team, by the opposing team. They cheer when the tornadoes tackle their sons, and they boo when the ref makes a bad call for the tornadoes. When asked why, Coach Hogan says, imagine if you didn't have a home. Imagine if everybody had pretty much given up on you. Now imagine what it would mean for hundreds of people to suddenly believe in you once again. Now the tornadoes are no match for Faith Christian on that particular night, even though Faith Christian put in its third-string quarterback as nose guard and its third-string linebacker as running back. They still won handily. But the Tornadoes finally know what it's like to have a home game, to have fans, to have parents in the stands who are rooting them on and cheering for them by name. Now they leave handcuffed again in a bus that has bars on it and with an armed guard to escort them back to their high security prison. But they receive a care package from Faith Christian. It's a burger, it's fries, it's some soda, candy, a Bible, and an encouraging letter written from 
one of the faith players to a particular tornado player. Maybe for the first time in a very long time, they felt human again. They felt like someone has believed in them, and they leave in tears because Faith Christian didn't see their home as a refuge, as a safe place for them. They saw it as a gift to be given to other people, to serve and extend the love of Jesus to people that maybe hadn't felt that ever before, or at least in a long time. Friends, as we consider our homes, our private spaces, as we consider this church Let's consider the gospel that makes this place a place for others, a place for outsiders, a place to give to the person in your pew next to you and to those outside. The gospel makes room for others. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you did not leave us looking in from the outside, that, Father, you granted us grace. You granted us your presence, your fatherly embrace. Lord, let us take hold of that again. Let us begin to see ourselves and build our identity around that fact. And Father, we are all at different places here this morning. Some of us have been committed to you for a long time and understand the gospel deeply. Some of us are still trying to work it out in our daily lives. Some of us are experiencing great failure in doing that. Would you meet our needs? And others of us here are just wondering whether this could be true, whether it's, it's right to call Jesus our home. Father, we pray that you would meet each of us where we are, that you would walk into our worlds yet again. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.